Wow, there's uh, so much to say in response to these four really rich and thoughtful responses. I am mostly just grateful to the, to the respondents for taking the time to think through my work in a way that I think is really careful and helps me to see it in, in new ways, uh, but also to think, to think with the book and to think about large questions that a lot of us care about now about the field, the world, politics today. And so I, I'm conscious that in my, in my response now, I'm not going to be able to do anything like justice to what they've said, but I wanted to uh, say a few things for the moment in anticipation of our live panel next week. Um, and I think I'll organize my comments around three broad themes. So first I'll say something about why I think the conversation opened by this book is important now, why I care about it. I'll say something second about how I think Derrida and Dionysius, as I read them, help us to rethink secularity and debates um, in that field. And third, I'll say something about how I see my book in relation to our present political moment, which is something that I think is weighing heavily on lots of us because this is a very dark and difficult time. So um, first, I'll say something about why I care about the conversation that my book is engaging. Noreen Kawaja in her response to the book raises the question that I think cuts most deeply. She observes that what I'm trying to do in the book is to reorient the relationship between philosophy and theology, religion and the secular by focusing on practice, uh, the manner in which one holds commitments rather than necessarily focusing on the content of those commitments. As she says, secularists like Mark Lilla reduce religion to a system of tenets that in their view precludes rational debate and in response, I try to show that this is a narrow stereotype that actually focuses on a certain sort of Christianity, which isn't the only sort of Christianity and it's certainly not the only sort of religious commitment that there is. Noreen observes that in this way, I am trying in the book to ask us to think about the alliances that are opened by rejecting a narrow secularism of this kind, but she worries that the conversation remains too narrow. I am, I think this is a, a really perceptive reading of what I'm trying to do in the book and also a perceptive diagnosis of its limitations. It's a concern that I share. My book focuses on two fields, continental philosophy and religion and a field that continues to be called in some quarters patristics. And both of these fields remain to an unfortunate extent, pale and male. I do a lot of work in the book to try to bring these fields into conversation with a broader set of interlocutors, uh, especially through political theology, some feminist theory, and some other things. I think broadening the conversation in this way made the book better than it would have been otherwise. I think these these uh, um, this sort of broadened approach to continental philosophy and the study of early Christian thought um, they add a lot and I think they bring to light important things that some specialists miss in the text in question. But like Noreen, I want the conversation to be broader still, broader than what I was able to do in, in this book. That's been on my mind, especially over the last year. So it's, this is a time when I think many of us are really disheartened at the way in which racism and misogyny are overtly dominant in politics, in the United States, but also in other parts of the world. These forces have been dominant for a long time, but 
I think they have become visible and salient in a new way recently. And partly for that reason, my work over the last year since I finished the book has been, uh, I think, focusing on, on how the, the resources that I work with, how I think they can respond to this situation in particular. And as a result, I've been working on my second book, which focuses more squarely on decolonial and feminist theory in order to try to clarify the continuing significance of religious reflection on miracles for debates over democratic politics. So the book that I'm working on at the moment is in a way sort of more directly and vividly political. And it's more obviously focused on the broader set of conversation partners that I think Noreen has in mind. And all that's to say is that I'm, my work is moving in this direction because I agree with her sense that a broader conversation is important. But maybe it's worth saying a bit more about why I think the conversation I'm staging in the first book with that set of interlocutors was also worth having because I think that it, it was. The first reason is, is really direct and simple, which is that the interlocutors that I engage in the first book remain really influential today. So to take one example, I argue in the book that the, uh, the philosophers John Caputo and Martin Haglund have really shaped the way that Derrida has read in many contexts. And as a result, I think a lot of readers who are depending on Caputo and Haglund misunderstand what Derrida is doing, both as such, but also in relation to religion. I think Chantal Mouffe is a much better reader of Derrida. And so in a way, I wish people were reading Derrida in conversation with Mouffe rather than Caputo and Haglund. But because Caputo and Haglund really dominate certain corners of the secondary literature, I felt like it was necessary to do some work to try to rescue Derrida from their readings, precisely so that a conversation partner like Mouffe can find a place that uh, I think might otherwise be neglected. So uh, there's a bit of, bit of reparative work that I'm trying to do. I don't want the conversation to end with the interlocutors that I focus on in the book, but I thought that it was necessary to do some work to respond to them in order to open up something bigger, better, and more interesting. Uh, the second reason is that in the context in which I move, ideological secularism and dogmatic theism remain really influential. So as with the reception of Derrida, I think that there are lots of other perception per, uh, perspectives on religion and secularity that are more compelling. Scholars of religion, I think, are uh, rightly uh, focused from much of the time on a much richer set of options. And that's the conversation that primarily I have to contribute to, but I'm also not quite willing to give up on readers who are drawn to either side of this dichotomy between secularism and uh, dogmatic religiosity. This is especially the case because in Australia where I live, there's a widespread sense that uh, religion is irrelevant and it's partly for this reason that support for the academic study of religion is really precarious. Uh, it's, our field is pretty directly under threat, both by university administrators and by the Australian government. And I, partly because I'm precariously employed, I, uh, I want to defend the importance of what we're doing. And for that reason, I felt like I needed to take the concerns of a secularist like Mark Lowell seriously. Anecdotally, this is not 
um, that's not decisive, but I've, I've tried in small ways to engage uh, a broader public through public writing and other things. And I found that working through the objections of someone like Lilla in a really thorough way has, has helped me to try to articulate something for a broader public about why the study of religion relates really directly to things that, that people care about who might not be religious at all or even care about it. So all that's to say is that I felt like uh, dealing with the, the sort of um, sort of range of views that I respond to in the book was important because those views and their and their proponents have a huge effect in the world that I live in. The, the main reason though, the third reason uh, is that I think that this conversation that I stage in the book between Derrida, Dionysius, their interpreters, in conversation with broader debates in political theology about hope and secularism. I think that this conversation actually says something really important about broader questions that are really urgent today. I've, as I've said, I think uh, Derrida is widely misunderstood. I think Dionysius also uh, has more to say than many of the, the most influential readings of him would suggest. And so the main thing I want to do, and the main reason I thought this conversation in my book was worth having is that I, I want to, to show that these, that these authors that I work on have things to say about the character of hope, the, the character of secularity, about uh, politics and the role of the sacred and so forth. And um, so I felt like it was worth retracing some of this territory in order to hopefully open up uh, something new in, in debates that I think a lot of people are invested in. Um, so there's a lot more to say about that. We can talk more next week uh, because I think this is a really important concern. I'll say something second uh, about how I think Derrida and Dionysius help us to rethink secularity, um, which is something that a number of the respondents probe. And again, I think there's a lot more to say about the questions that they raise and we'll have the chance. But um, I want to focus on Sarah Coakley's concerns because I think she offers a response that's the most challenging in a way. So Sarah seems happy on the whole with my reading of Derrida, but she isn't convinced by my reading of Dionysius. In her words, Dionysius' uh, depiction, his vision of encounter with God is undergirded by the Christian narrative of salvation. So as Sarah says, uh, this means that Dionysius isn't uncertain in the way that Derrida is. And so Sarah ultimately disagrees with my claim that Dionysius and Derrida have a congruent account of hope. Sarah sees a significant difference between them that I, uh, that I don't. So uh, I think this is one thing, as Sarah says in her comments, that would be worth spending some time talking about at the live session next week. So I'll just say a couple things. Um, the first thing to say is that Sarah's reading of Dionysius is widely held by specialist interpreters of Dionysius. I think there's a lot to be said for it. I think there's a lot in the Dionysian corpus that makes a reading of this kind plausible. And that's one of the reasons that I spend a fair bit of time in the book arguing that this received reading of Dionysius actually can't account for key moments in Dionysius's writings. I, I won't retrace the entire argument now. Uh, I'll simply briefly reiterate that I think Dionysius is clear that his affirmation of Christian doctrine is qualified by his negativity. So this is, I think, the key difference. Sarah says that Dionysius' account 
of encounter with God is undergirded by the Christian narrative, but I see the relationship is working in the other way. I think that Dionysius's account of encounter with God and the sort of dazzling darkness that he describes actually uh, says something really important about the character of uh, Dionysius's affirmation of the Christian narrative of salvation. So uh, just to put it to put it as squarely as I can, uh, I think that when, when Dionysius describes the need for unknowing, when he embodies an apathetic negativity that negates every, uh, every name for God, I think he means it. And I think he thinks that the, the divine transcendence means that God is unknowable in some really radical sense. And that means, in my view, his affirmation of Christian doctrine is provisional, has the character, as I argue, of hope rather than a sort of certain knowledge. So all that's to say, I do think, I really do think that my interpretation is better supported by the text in question. I think at the very least it's a possible interpretation. I think it's the one that makes the best sense of the text on the, on the whole. But I think the point that Sarah raises, which, which is probably worth focusing on, is why the debate matters. So the reason I'm invested in defending this interpretation of Dionysius is that I think he models an approach to Christian thought that's often overlooked in broader debates over secularity that, that frequently resolve into simplistic dichotomies. So Sarah says a few things about um, alternative accounts in, in religious ethics of, of hope. Um, she argues that my, my reading of a Christian ethicist like David Elliott is not fair. And uh, I think she's certainly right that my, my engagement with Elliott is relatively brief. It's not comprehensive. And there's a lot that I appreciate about Elliott's account. But I do think that I show with quotations from his work that Elliott claims that Christian hope offers a confidence that non-Christians lack. And this is a claim that, as I show, is common in many theological accounts of hope. And it's a claim that I disagree with. So although I have a lot of appreciation for what a lot of these uh, Christian theologians are doing, I, I want to do something different. And I think Dionysius is doing something different. And so that's why the debate over Dionysius matters to me. So as Sarah says, Dionysius doesn't use the language of uncertainty, but I think it's an apt translation of a key theme in the Dionysian corpus. Um, I argue at some length in the book that Dionysius indicates that any claims about God's work in the world are tentative and provisional, subject to the negativity of apophasis. I think the, uh, I point to a number of um, expressions of, uh, I, would, I would say uncertainty is simply the best word for it in the Dionysian corpus. Um, he says again and again that he's, he's doing the best that he can to speak of God, but he recognizes that what he says is inadequate and he invites revision and correction by others. So all that's to say, all of the words that we're speaking about Dionysius are translating him because we're not speaking his language. And in any case, there wouldn't be a, another option even if we were. Um, but I think that the... the um, the, the argument that I make that Dionysius affirms Christian thought and practice through an uncertain hope makes the best sen sense of this tension in the Dionysian corpus between uh, light and darkness, the sort of 
affirmation and, and negativity that he um, that he describes. Um, and maybe it's worth saying something a bit more, Sarah, about Sarah's maybe her chief concern as I read her. Uh, so Sarah Coakley worries that my definition of hope is too minimal. She observes that some theologians have argued that hope is a theological virtue that's presumed to be the outcome of a life of sanctification and grace. And so she's concerned that my account of hope doesn't do that, doesn't make those theological claims. I, I think it's maybe crucial, and maybe this is, points to the, the possibility of a reconciliation between Sarah's perspective and mine. I don't think my account of hope precludes a robustly theological account of this kind. I see my understanding of hope in Dionysius as operating in a different register. So rather than trying to make first order theological claims, I'm reflecting on the, the mode in which on Dionysius's terms, theological claims need to be made, which is to say, in my understanding from the perspective that humans inhabit on Dionysius's account, the sort of robustly theological kind of hope that Sarah describes, any claims about sanctification, grace, God's work in the world, would be uncertain in the sense that I have in mind. And for that reason, they would require uh, a hope that is, uh, has the form that I think Dionysius exemplifies, a sort of resilient desire that persists in the face of uncertainty. So all that's to say, I think the sort of theology that Sarah cares about is not impossible on my account. It's not what I'm doing, but I also think that what I'm doing helps to understand what that more ro robust, in her view, um, theology, uh, how it's possible uh, on the terms that uh, the Dionysius describes. So to sort of loop back to the broader question about what my reading of Derrida and Dionysius has to say about debates over secularity, I argue in the book that the dominant readings of deconstruction and negative theology and their relation to each other map onto three really common responses to the sort of crisis of faith in a secular age, which is to say some people say that we have to choose between an indeterminate spirituality, a sort of religion without religion that doesn't have any determinate content, uh, dogmatic traditionalism that would claim that traditional religiosity provides a kind of certainty that uh, secular people can't access, or finally, a radical atheism that thinks that religion is just um, is just a disaster that's best that's best avoided or dispensed with. I am invested in my interpretation of both Derrida and Dionysius because I think they they offer a fourth alternative. So um, rather than endorsing the the lines that are commonly drawn between the secular and the religious, what I think they show is that the the boundary is a lot blurrier than people often appreciate. So I think uh, my, my reading of Dionysius shows that a really, a really sort of robust, robustly doctrinal Christian theology can acknowledge its uncertainty and can acknowledge that it is sustained by a hope that, that, is, uh, that requires reserves of, res of resilience. Uh, it's not obvious, it's not certain. And by the same token, I think Someone like Derrida, who's an atheist of a certain kind, uh, shows that um, he is also invested in a hope that is of the same kind, even though he hopes for different things than Dionysius. And uh, furthermore, he shows, I think, that someone who has no religious commitments of their own can, and in his view, perhaps must, 
uh, work with and through religious texts in order to understand the, the world that we live in. So uh, there's a lot more to say about that, but I'll, I'll, in the interest of time, move on to the third set of themes I want to talk about, which is the most important, but also the hardest to talk about, which has to do with politics. So uh, Sarah Hammerschlag mentioned that she's been wondering over the last couple of weeks about what to do if Donald Trump successfully subverts the results of the US presidential election. This is on the front of my mind as well. And for a lot of the last few months, last few years, it's been hard to think about anything else just because I feel like the um, American democracy as writers like Tomasi Coates remind us has been unfulfilled for a long time, but I think it's, it's frailty has become transparent recently, partly, um, yeah, through the act of, uh, through the actions of people like Donald Trump, who make the really profound undercurrent of racism and misogyny that drives the American political system, uh, make it explicit in a way that a lot of politicians try to avoid. So all that's to say is that I've been distressed and heartbroken and, and hopeful um, and anxious about the political situation that we're living through. And I've come to the view that I think we have reason to think that things are likely to get worse rather than better, maybe better in the short term. But I think the long-term prospects for democracy in the United States are really poor. And it bears saying, since I'm, I'm, I'm living at quite some distance from the US and Australia, uh, things are worrying all around the world. And I think the, um, you know, the rising, tide of climate change and the economic and social fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. All of that means that people who are already vulnerable are likely to suffer increasingly. And that's terrible and we ought to reckon with that. I'm conscious that, that my book and what I say now is nothing like equal to the, to the magnitude of these crises. But I think it's worth reflecting for a while on the point that, that Sarah Hammerslag makes and her comments about inheritance, because I think that um, what she points to is something I absolutely want to affirm. So she she uh, argues in, in sort of dis distinction from my work that she thinks that what's most politically salient about Derrida's work is his understanding of inheritance. So Sarah Hammerslag wants to say that the thing that Derrida really has to offer is this understanding of inheritance, rather than she thinks I emphasize the sort of futural messianic um, hopeful dimension in Derrida. So as she describes, Derrida suggests that there, there isn't a space to run to. We can't opt out of the colonialism and the sexism that uh, run through our, our cultures in really problematic ways. So as she describes it, in, in order to respond to this, this really problematic and ambivalent inheritance, we have to find another way of going forward, not by divesting the responsibility for inheritance onto another person, um, but by taking it up ourselves. And I think this is hugely important. I mean, this is um, something that I've learned in part from Sarah's work. I, she mentions in her comments that I refer to her first book in, in my book, but I've also learned a lot from her second book, Broken Tablets, has, um, has really shaped my understanding of, of Derrida and his um, his work as a reader. And this is one of the reasons that actually I don't see, um, I don't see a tension between the sort of futurity in Derrida or the, the sort of dimension of the past that Sarah is 
pointing to. I, uh, I try in the book to show that Derrida's treatment of temporality in the late 60s and early 70s already, already situates the, the past and the future as, um, as, as being really tightly related. Both of them, uh, in my understanding, have the sort of character of alterity uh, disrupting the presence. And I think this is uh, especially clear in Derrida's later work as he unpacks the political significance of, um, of these uh, earlier themes in relation to the past and the future that he lays out in his early work. I also think, I mean, I spent some time in the book uh, trying to make this point in relation to Derrida's method as a reader. So um, already in the introduction, I emphasize that Derrida sees himself as uh, working with tradition and sort of working and reworking this uh, body of text that he inherits and that we inherit and doing something new with them, opening, opening uh, classic texts to new possibilities. And this is how I understand hope as being uh, sort of situated between the past and the future in this way. I certainly don't want to say that Derrida's perspective is futural at the expense of inheritance. On the contrary, against some readers of Derrida, I want to show that in my book that um, Derrida's messianic hope isn't detached from particular traditions, but on the, on the contrary, he, because he's always a reader, what he's doing is working within the structures that are present, whether they're political structures or texts, traditions that, that are with us. He works within these, uh, this inheritance to try to open up the possibility of something that's radically different. And in my understanding of hope, hope has to negotiate between the sort of work of discernment that Derrida is often talking about, how to, how in a particular context to negotiate with the given inheritance and uh, the sort of orientation of the future, the, the sort of commitment to a democracy and a justice that's always to come. So all that's to say is that I just want to endorse what Sarah has said about inheritance. And I think um, as she as she points out, I think it has a lot to say to our political moment. moment. So she uh, points out that I, in the book, I argue that uh, Derridian lens is crucial to resisting dogmatic adherence on both the left and the right. And this is something that I really worry about because I think the, the danger of dogmatism on the right um, might be clearer to some of us, but I think uh, complacency is a danger for everyone. And that's why in my account of hope, I'm not, I'm not only concerned about the threat of despair, but I'm also concerned about the, um, the way in which a certain kind of comfort can ossify or freeze political thinking. And so one of the things I want to do in articulating hope in conversation with Derrida and Dionysius is to, is to try to give language to, to this motivating force, this force that's uh, sustaining and disruptive in my understanding, in um, in politics and in particular in democratic politics, so this is what I want to say to the concerns that Andrew Prevo raises, um, which I think, in a way, are the most profound. But I, because they're so big, I feel like I have the least to say about them in a way. So Andrew says that he agrees with Derrida's politics, but disagrees with Derrida's theology. And on the on the other hand, he uh, agrees with Dionysius's theology, but he disagrees with Dionysius's politics. And so he was left reading my book with a feeling that there are actually two different kinds of hope in Derrida and Dionysius, neither of which is what he wants as 
uh, Christian theologian living in a secular age committed to democracy. Um, and I, I have a lot of sympathy with that because what I'm trying to do in the book is navigate between these two authors um, who are, as Andrew describes, really different in lots of ways. So as I've, as I've said just now, I think one of the things I want to do in the book is to read Derrida and Dionysius better in order to show that they have more to offer debates today than people often appreciate. So I try really hard to read both authors really hard and really carefully, but I, I try to emphasize at key points that I'm not reproducing either of them. So I think my reading of both is substantiated by the text in question, but I don't think any interpretation can actually simply repeat the, the, the text that is being interpreted. I think that's impossible in principle. And I actually think this is something that both Derrida and Dionysius acknowledge, uh, whether implicitly or explicitly, every, every interpretation is transformative. Um, I've said something about that, and so is Sarah Hammerschlag in relation to Derrida. In relation to Dionysius, I'll simply say briefly, as I, as I mentioned in the introduction, I think it's no accident that Dionysius is pseudo, pseudo Dionysius, because he took on the name of a first century follower of the apostle Paul, who's named in the New Testament, but there's reason to think that he actually lived in the fifth or sixth century instead. This isn't simply, in my view, a lie or a forgery, as some commentators have uh, argued. Martin Luther was famously irritated by this. Uh, I think what Dionysius is doing is, is the sort of active inheritance that Sarah Hammerschlag describes. He's placing himself in a, in a tradition, taking it up, doing something new with it uh, by bringing key themes in Pauline theology into conversation with Neoplatonic thought. So all that's to say is that uh, I understand my reading of both Derrida and Dionysius as transformative in an important sense. And so for that reason, my book isn't trying to say that anyone, whether it's Andrew or anyone else, ought to simply endorse Dionysius's politics or Derrida's philosophy. The point isn't to, to encourage a sort of um, straightforward fidelity to their, um, to their own commitments. What I'm trying to do in the book is to show that these authors, as I read them, help us to see something important about hope, something that's often obscured, which is to say, in my understanding, hope is a resilient desire that can persist in the face of uncertainty. Hope can take an object that seems to be impossible to the person who's hoping that hope isn't, isn't divided according to a strict sort of uh, distinction between secular hope and Christian hope, but instead people who are religious and people who aren't, aren't share this uh, capacity, this need for resilience and persistence in the face of uncertainty. So to, to return to Sarah Hammerschlag's concern, this is the way that I see my book connecting with the political crises we're living through, the, um, the you know, apparent slow demise of American democracy. Uh, I, I have been really deeply moved over the last few months, over the last year and longer, about the, the movements that have sprung up in response to racial violence, environmental devastation, and other other horrors in our world. I am really conscious that these movements are too momentous and too complex for me to speak to them in any adequate way. But I do wanna say just as a, as a way to conclude my comments now that I've tried to learn from them. One of the things that I have, have seen is that these activists are demanding that the world transforms in ways that seem impossible. And in many ways they are 
facing structural resistance that that uh, seems pretty inexorable. Andrew says in his comments that he is interested in the material things that people are doing, how they live, how they spend their time. And uh, he's too polite to say this, but I think he implies correctly that my book doesn't say a great deal on this level. It's not, it's not the thing that the book is doing. It's not what I'm best at as a thinker, I think. But I have been thinking in response to the movement for Black Lives, Extinction Rebellion and other movements uh, about what these material things that people are doing today um, have, to teach, uh, have to teach me about hope. And I think they've helped me to see why I was invested in hope all along because there, there is, as I foreground in the book, a personal dimension to hope. I think it's something we need in order to live and in order to love. But I, I think that these movements crystallize for me about something about the importance of hope for politics. So in the book, I try to articulate a hope, describe a hope that isn't a sort of optimistic confidence. It's not a positive feeling, but instead it's a resilient practice that works in the world. And I made this argument because I think a hope of this kind isn't easy, but I think it's also hugely important. So as I've said, I think that due to the limits of the book, which is a pretty lean book due to my limits as a person. The conversation in the book stages isn't as broad as the conversation I actually care about. But I hope that what I've done in the book is a beginning or an opening in, in Sarah Coakley's phrase that gives language to the kind of resilient hope that we see springing up today and which we will need all the more in order to endure the dark times that we have ahead. There's a lot more to say about all of that. And I look forward to seeing what other people say at our live panel next week. So thanks again to the, the panelists for their comments, which I, I take as a, as a great gift. And thanks to uh, Brad for his work, putting the audio together and for Rick Elgendi and to helping organize this and uh, hope to see you all next week. Thanks. <laughs>